Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether you should or should not dig these back out again. If you are ready for an 80s music deep dive, from Public Enemy to Wham, Eno to XTC, Madonna, hair metal, reggae, and all points in between, then Crank the boombox, turn the Walkman up to 10, and ooh, let's go. Now, from the kitchen, Chris and Henry. All right, here we're back. Yes, episode seven. And we're going to talk, we, we did May. We finished out May. We did part one, and we did part two. We covered 10 records. That's hence why June is episode seven, not episode and six. People liked May. That The May uh, part one episode. I'm they really encouraged. It. Like we we we're growing and people yes. are listening. And they need to um, uh, hit me up on Twitter and give me what for. I know some of you people. What's our Twitter handle? At eighties exposed. Yeah, hit us up. We know you're listening because we can see it, but we we want to make this a community show more than just a uh, Henry and Chris show. We really want suggestions from you guys. And we'll set up a time. We'll Critiques. put you, we'll put you on the show to talk about it. Whoa, Tiger! Don't get carried away there. But maybe we'll put you on the show. <laughs> so, it, all right. If this is so your first, t- tell us, Henry. Yeah. What? How do we do this? If What's this going is your on? first time listening to us, what we do is we have been going through every month of the year 1980, and we're going to keep marching through the 80s as long as we can. We also drink a lot of whiskey, by the way. Sometimes. Sometimes we go easy. Sometimes we go hard. This might be a medium night. The but basically, we picked some of the best-reviewed records from each month, and we look at uh, the all-music five-star category. That's right. We also take a look at Grammy nominees. All Music, by the way, is a website. It's an aggregator. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, we we pick out selections from history that we both know and love from that era to consider those. Right. We also take a look at the Rolling Stone year-end top 25. One thing we don't do is we don't look at uh, how it's uh, perceived today or its impact today. So you'll hear us make you'll hear us make record selections that people really may not be thinking about these days. We don't take a look at the Pitchfork, you know, evaluations of these records as as they're how important they were. No, we'll give you our evaluations as to, and we'll try to say what we thought of them then if we did, because we were little kids or what we think of them now. And, and by the way, that's the other cool thing, Henry. I don't know that me and you've talked about is as we go further along, if we can keep this up by the time we get to 1989, you and I were graduating high school that year. So it won't just be like, yeah, I kind of remember this record. It'll be, yeah, this was in my stereo all summer. Of 1988. I, I will say this month, the month that we're doing right now in June, is probably the month that I started listening. Okay, well, hey, so we'll talk about some. There of that. is some big stuff this month that comes from my memory banks too. So yeah, weird. Um, I wanted to I wanted to try every month if there was one or if there's a couple significant events um, from history to start the show off, just to kind of get everybody back in the frame of mind of what was going on back then. There wasn't a huge amount of stuff going on in June. In June, but there was one big one that I think, um, except for the advent of smartphones, has kind of changed uh, where we are, at least politically, today. And that was that CNN was launched. Ted Turner. In June of 1980, which I think totally changed the news landscape as we know it in this country. So that was what was happening outside of music in June. 
But now we're going to talk about five of the records that came out then. And Henry, why don't you take us into the first? Okay, the first record we're going to talk about is from a little band called Queen. Little band called Queen. And they did a record called The Game. They did in 1980. And one of the, uh, you know, this is roundly considered to be a classic. Uh, I think first thing out of the gate, we should probably play one of the most popular songs from it. Yep, I, I I kind of um, went back and forth on this one because there were two or three big hits on it, but I just went with the one that had the biggest impact on me as a kid, and yep. this is Another One Bites the Dust. Yep. Okay, Henry, so that was another one bites the dust, and this is the game. I mean, right. I mean, if you haven't heard that song, you really haven't been on planet Earth. No, that's a, yeah. I mean, and hasn't it been sampled a lot? I mean, that I would think so, that bass line, yeah. If you've been to a sporting event, if you've watched TV, this that song was the first 45 that my friend brought over. The other, the other, the B side was "Don't Try Suicide." Right. My very first memory of this was the forty-five. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why is is because I'd never heard a song about a topic like "Don't Try Suicide" was openly about some topic that I was interested in as a teenager, other than a love song or a car song. <laughs> yeah. So I think we listened to "Don't Try Suicide" as much as we listened to "Another One Bites the Dust." The same guy had. Another forty-five from I guess it was the pre it was Fat, fat Bottom Girls, which I think was a record from a previous before, before that. That's correct. And the B side to that was the Bicycle. But you know, I was thinking about that this bicycle, time. Bicycle, right? Bicycle, bicycle which yeah. to me is more cla- um, classically what you think of Classic as Queen, Queen, right? The Bohemian Rhapsody uh, bicycle thing. I do want to say. I have a blind spot with Queen, so I was hoping you would. Um, well, I you, don't like Queen. I don't like much about Queen. I got it. All right, so I don't like the basic premise of Queen, which was what they were before this, the game. This, this this theatrical this theatrical overwrought thing you know, with occasional blasts of rock guitar to me always seemed just. It seemed like all the elements of yes with that's all the, the elements. Of, that's the problem. Is that the Scorpions or something? Is that we have a, had a ten, because we came uh, along with like. A, punk and post-punk sort of ethos in the way that we learn to like music. I don't know that we appreciated like the sheer theatrics that somebody that uh, Freddie Mercury, uh, uh, a gay man, 
you know, brought to that sort of like a Broadway element to it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I always thought the, uh, like bicycle and Bohemian Rhapsody to me were much more like, um, uh, show tunes, yeah. show tunes with, um, and, and one could, one could say they were overwrought, but, but if you can't have a guy like Freddie Mercury in your band and not play like that, well then, you know, go ahead and, um, rip me up for what I'm, this is. So I didn't really listen to the game except I, for these, the hits before, mm-hmm. well, that's before who, this week. Who would have heard? Did, did you have a cut? Co- you didn't have a copy of the record. I did not. I mean, but here's the old I'm, I'm going to give you my thoughts and you tell me why this is wrong. Cause I'm not a queen guy. I'm not either, but I'll try. I'll try to take okay. the other. It's not that I'm not a queen guy. So, right. So I look at the first thing I'm starting the record and I'm looking at the cover and they're all in leather jackets and it's a black and white photograph. And the record to me sounds like right off the bat, I thought, oh, I was expecting Bohemian Rhapsody. Queen is actually doing their take on 50s and 60s rock and roll. Yep. What they grew up on. I don't, like, agree with it. Well, I don't know about what they grew up on. Okay, right. I don't either. So, But, <laughs> but that's what I'm thinking. Like, yeah. that's what I'm thinking this is obviously some sort of tribute to the rock and roll era. When, in fact, I do my research, I find out, no, they were just trying to do a, I think, just trying to cut out some of the bullshit and do a pop record. Mm-hmm. But that's how it came out. Now, number two. The further I got into it, and I have to say I was hating that whole notion at the time, like, oh, my God, this just sounds like 50s. they're doing a 50s doo-wop. I'm blown away by not only, and this is going to sound dumb, but Freddie Mercury's voice. I can't complain. I mean, there's no you can't complain about that. No, you can't. I don't know if you noticed, but the bass player, and I want to give a shout-out to his name, John Deacon. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you noticed, but there's like four different styles of bass he exhibits on yeah. this album. And I mean, they're kind of right down the line for that, but they're so spot on. I'm like, this guy could have been the best Sessions fucking bass player in the 70s. Like you were just like, hey, we need a funk bass line. Listen to uh, the opening to Don't Try Suicide. You need a funk bass line. You can't beat another one bites the dust. If you need a rock and roll 50s bass line. Listen to the very first song, which I don't have the name of in front of me. Oh, and uh, called, and then there's another song there called Rocket. Right. <laughs> you know? And so, and then I'm listening, and the guy, that, the, the guitar player, uh, he's got like, did you notice, Henry, on like Another One Bites the Dust, he's got that little skanky uh, faux R&B kind of, yes. he's got that going on, but then also on... One of those other big numbers, all out of the blue, he just comes out and goes, and and burns it up. And so you're like, these guys can play their balls off. So I got to give them the props for that. With all that said, and I will be quiet after this, with all that said, in my mind, it still comes off to me feeling plastic, not a lot of heart or feeling to it, like their bloated, overbloated, orchestrated stuff, which I think they like more. I just didn't like that shit. You know, I'm not into that show tuny stuff, but I think that's where their heart is. This sounds kind of fake, plasticky, and I think that's why it did better on American radio. Maybe. I, I, I have a, my viewpoint was that the other stuff was overwrought and unapproachable, and this was a way for a kid like me to sort of get into Queen, being Queen, uh, being a Queen fan. Right. Because, um, obviously, uh, the, the 50s and 60s kind of style was, 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 
was being taken from the punk world, I would think. This is like them sort of nodding off to, hey, by the way, punk is, is happening. Punk is happening, and this is a known thing that we know. Right. And it's not foreign to us. Right. But we're not going to completely uh, go away from what we know, which is we have an amazing vocalist that knows how to sing and, by the way, knows how to how to write well and let me try to alienate at least um a third to two-thirds of the people that probably have already listened to this show what i felt like listening to that i didn't really like this and i also felt like listening to this it sounded like the ramones to me fake plastic and 50s uh remakey kind of garbage yeah, yeah and i know if 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 you told a real regular music fan that Queen sounded like Ramones here that Queen would be like, yeah, that's what we, we, we hit the mark. We were recognizing punk and we hit the mark and the Ramones are the gold standard of punk. You dumb shit, <laughs> but <laughs> not for me. So anyway, well, um, they wrote crazy little thing called love. And which it sounds like a, an Elvis song, and it's a, but it's a, cl- it's so good that it has become a classic. I got a love. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was a more homage than I feel like because he's an operatic music theater train guy it was like in his mind he was doing elvis the musical he now that's probably not true at all i'm just saying that's yeah, what i hear that you're, that's how you feel that's how it. i hear you yeah. he said he does play guitar but he he never thought of himself as being a good guitar player and when they played that song live he would pick it up he said that because he sucked as a guitar player that's why he wrote a good song is because of the limitations that were put on him. And it reminded me of like uh, the Peter Gabriel limitations. They told Phil Collins he he couldn't play. Yeah, and I, I, I could maybe never argue their musician either any of their also they, ability or musicianship. They did record this at Musicland in Munich, which is what a lot of uh, guys at the time uh, did. Another record that we're going to look at was also recorded there. I can't remember which one, but the guy that started that was Giorgio Moroder, by the way. <laughs> Oh really? Yeah, yeah. the Daft Punk, Punk guy. guy. Yeah, and the or, disco. Yeah. yeah, the disco guy. Right. So I just thought that was interesting. So uh, it's I, weird. Also, I also found a little interesting tidbit, Henry, that this was the first record they'd ever used a synthesizer on. Really? Which I would have thought, and because I'm not a Queen guy, but I would have mm-hmm. thought a lot of that bloated '70s stuff had synth all over it. But right it around not. that time, Queen was all around everywhere because the next record that they did was the soundtrack to Flash Gordon. Right. Which is my last name. And so I, everybody who wanted to talk, hey, Flash. Well, your, Flash, your last name uh, is not Flash Gordon. It's no, Gordon. But, right, right, Gordon. But they would say. It would be way cooler if your last Flash, name was Flash Gordon. Uh, and so you would hear that all the time. See, I, I will say. I like the Flash Gordon soundtrack way I better have than this. A particular, <laughs> I, I don't know if this is true. I always blamed Def Leppard for this. But I have always had a weakness for layered vocal stuff, regardless of what it is. Like, I love that bigger sound. It's, you know, it's an, one of the reasons I like the Cocteau Twins because of the great layered vocal sounds that they get and all that. So, what, Def Leppard, I always like the big vocal sounds that they get. Is it really because I listened to Queen in 1980? It could be. Because, that could be the root of it because they yeah, were doing it. But if you listen to, so, but there is a point where that shit gets like annoying. And when you, it's the over the top stuff then just starts to sound silly. It, it, they Wayne's World did. You know, Wayne's World did the other other stuff to a point where it sounded cra- like crap. Well, another record I'm sure we'll get to, I, I think it's further down the line of the 80s, but always, when I was a kid, even reminded me of Queen, and that's why I hated it. But I think it's really borne out now is uh, Mr. Roboto by Styx, which was a big oh, yeah. rock opera kind of Queen thing. But um, 
Yeah, I always thought the layered vocals and everything. It just, I just don't. I get queasy when I get when you get into show tune territory. And I, I, I thought about this a lot uh, with our other podcast because we had a, an argument with a guest about sh- uh, show tunes and musicals. Oh yeah. I think the thing I don't like is when I, I feel like music is written with some other agenda. And show tunes are definitely written with the agenda of serving the show, which is what they're supposed to do, mm-hmm. not for the sake of the music. The, Even though they might, you you can make an argument that Rodgers and Hammerstein made better music than anybody else. But to me, if there's an ulterior motive, whether it be Christ or, and I, I said that on purpose, that's like Christian rock, or show tunes or some other agenda being fed, I start getting a little. Uh, I'm I'm going to go with a thumbs up on it, um, mostly because it's part of the rock pantheon and with today's speakers and uh, sound systems and these modern cars. cars the the remastered version of this you owe it to yourself to uh to turn this up and uh, and give it a proper listen i'm really not sure we ever heard it the first time the way maybe they had wanted us to hear it so if you're at all inclined to hear these classic songs that have stood the test of time but like i think you need to yeah. look at it through the prism of is it worth something telling somebody out there to go back and listen to it again yeah and i think the reason why is because the sound has improved it's been remastered and that and those bass licks like you said are uh, are unstoppable the guy's voice was nobody else has ever sounded like that brian mays one of the best guitar players the world's ever known and with all that said, I would still say, just don't, don't worry about it. Not too much. <laughs> I mean, it's good, but it ain't all that. Right. <laughs> right. Well, right. Henry, our next record Move is uh, by the Rolling Stones. It's called Emotional Rescue. And although I will say this right up front, Emotional Rescue, the song, is my second favorite Rolling Stones song of all time. I did not pick that as the choice to play here. Why don't you do it? I will tell you after the song, I picked Dance Part 1. And I'll tell you why. I, I I discovered the Rolling Stones as a kid in the 80, in 1980 or 79, 80-ish, with Waiting on a Friend, mm-hmm. Emotional Rescue, and my favorite record of theirs all time, Some Girls, which came out in 78. So that to me was the Rolling Stones. I didn't know that it was kind of the beginning of the end period for the Rolling Stones. So a lot of Rolling Stones purists think, they started to go disco or whatever, and then it, with, with it ushered in. Well, with this record and Tattoo You, um, the song Emotional Rescue has always been panned by purists because it sounds like they're incorporating disco. Um, I love that. I thought it was great. that They sounded like a rock band, but they kind of had this um, 
disco-y influence. So mm-hmm. I, I love that as a kid. The reason I didn't play the song Emotional Rescue is yeah, because well, it's not the only song on there that feels that way. And I think a lot of people mistakenly think that song, Emotional Rescue, was their disco song and it was a bomb and they hated it. And then they, the rest of the time they played Steel Wheels type shit. It's not true <laughs> at all. Doing my research, I found that the three record set of Some Girls, Emotional Rescue, and Tattoo You are considered the last great period of the Rolling Stones before the end. Now, a lot of people say it's the worst of the best periods. Um, I just, I totally disagree. All the songs on this record, Henry, and the songs on Tattoo You were basically recorded at the same time. They knocked out almost 30 tracks. Well, why is it I like Tattoo You? If you listen, I, I'll tell you what. Why what, is that? Well, I'll tell you what shocked me um, listening to this record. I hadn't listened to it all the way through in a while. And a couple mm-hmm. times I was like, am I listening to Tattoo You or Emotional Rescue? And then when I did my research, realized they were both all pretty pretty much all recorded at the Compass Point Studios in NASA Bahamas at the same time. And it was cut and, into two records. And Keith was just on the tail end of, of getting out of some drug problems in Canada, I think. Yes, in Canada. And then they went to the Bahamas, which a lot of bands were doing, going to Compass mm-hmm. Point, kind of like soaking up the Caribbean vibe. And I really like Emotional Rescue. It, um, I like Some Girls, the record before it is my favorite all time mm-hmm. Rolling Stones records, but there's some great, um, songs on this one. And it's, I don't feel like there's filler yet, which is my problem with Steel Wheels, which we'll probably get, get to in 89, which is but there's two or three really good songs 50. on there that think, that's Rolling Stones good stuff, but yeah. then there's like seven songs of garbage, you know? Yeah, the, the Rolling Stones have always been a very difficult band for me to like. I think the first record I heard, or, or outside of the hits, right? I can't get no satisfaction, and all the big hits on the radio were just always there, right? But the full, first full record I ever heard was your copy of Steel Wheels, which was not a good like introduction that is not a good to, intro. to the band no. at all. So... Over the years, I've gone back and listened to it, and I happen to like Tattoo You. I don't know why I see it as distinctly different from this one. It's re- For whatever reason, this one bored me to death. I, I just can't. I could not get into it. The Rolling Stones just didn't. They sounded lazy. They sounded like they were sort of back, backing up, doing the stuff they always had. What, what are you hearing in it that I'm not hearing? That's exactly what I'm hearing, that they are, that they are um, infusing the sounds of the time. Um, they, they basically were soaking up New York when they did some girls tattoo mm-hmm. you and, and emotional rescue and adding in kind of the, that late seventies, uh, feel. I mean, waiting on a friend does not sound anything like a Rolling Stones yeah. type vibe. Neither does the song emotional rescue. I think one of the things um, about, the, about the Rolling Stones. So to me, there's an added excitement for you to, for, for a person to like the Rolling Stones. I think you really have to buy into, the swagger of Mick Jagger as a person, right? There's something about his delivery and everything. You have to really be into the way that he does it. And for whatever reason, I guess his stuff is so off-putting that I always go, I kind of wince. You've got it. the same thing for Rolling Stones, it sounds like, like I had for Queen. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. And it's, so, it's hard to shake that. Right. Because this one was hard to listen to. Well, me. if you, I, well, I would say uh, for me, if you're a Rolling Stones fan who's often kind of poo-pooed anything after Exile on Main Street, I would yeah. give this a listen again. I think there's plenty on this record that is that is worth listening to just as a regular fan of music. Uh, so I disagree with Henry on that. But I will say the best 
poppiest, hit, hideous version of hits on Tattoo You are probably more pleasing to the average person. I don't know how, if I divided this session into two records, uh-huh. I didn't put Start Me Up on the first one because it's obviously the most hit worthy. I mean, that, that, the, the beginning of Start Me Up is so iconic. Yeah. That it's like, how did they go? Yeah, that one's not going to make the first record. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, I'm seriously like, I, and I'm not even a huge start me up guy, but like that, who doesn't know? Right. I mean, how did that not make the, the emotional rescue? I don't know. I like the Rolling Stones for their hits, I think. <laughs> Well, a lot of people do. Awful? A lot of people do. And, I, and I'll tell you, I, my, like when they got it right, they killed it. And but my, when they got it wrong, it just meh. my closet <laughs> thing. I yeah. hate to admit, which I'm going to admit on a podcast, is one of my least favorite records is the the masterpiece XL on Main Street because of that very thing. Really, I feel like there's sometimes that I get in between songs I know, and it sounds like they were all high for a month. In the basement, right. just recording and recording and recording and recording. And it was like stuff where there's horn breaks that I'm like, why why didn't y'all put the cocaine down and just like cut this record into a single record? I know that's heresy to say that. Um, but anyway, I'm going to totally recommend uh, Emotional Rescue. I, what I wanted to say then, too, about it then, Henry, was that I not only did I really like it, but this record is what I actually remember one of the things I actually remember from the 80s, like I remember this album. I don't know if my parents had it or what, but it was definitely one of the things that I was like, even then. Really? I was like, oh, shit, this is what rock and roll is supposed to sound like, you know? <laughs> um, so maybe that's why I had an instant attraction to late period Stones. I don't know. Huh. But, yeah, so I, I, this is one of my recommends you should go back and listen to because this is what the 80s, 1980 sounded like to me. That's cool. I'm giving it a thumbs down on this one. But, uh, obviously, if you're into the Stones, then you should, uh, you should listen to Chris. Yeah, and now for something that is just going to be all Henry all the time. He's been waiting for this for six episodes. Completely different. He now something completely different. Henry, take it away. We are going to talk about the Soft Boys and their classic album, Underwater Moonlight. It's called what classic neo psychedelia they call it. And the song I've chosen to play for you is "I Want to Destroy You." Here it is.
All right, Henry, I, I, I am so indifferent to this record that Unreal. I am just going to let you wow. go for it. Wow. <laughs> you didn't even let me try to convince you. I am. I'm I out, no, already I'm, feel like I, I was no, like, I'm I thought this would be an easy climb up the mountain with you. I'm all ears. I thought we could hold hands, skip, and tra la la. But we can't. Uh, no, I definitely want to. I'm definitely all ears. But yeah, I, this one did so, for me about what Emotional Rescue did for that's you. That's so weird. It, it, didn't, it didn't bother me. I didn't hate it, but it bored me to tears. So go for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, really, uh, I have a really strong like for this record, uh, probably because some of the, the bands that I grew up listening to from. Uh, the 80s and 90s, like R.E.M. and The Replacements and all of that, you can definitely hear the roots and all that. They used to call this kind of music um, neo-psychedelia or acid, acid punk, they call it, right? So it took elements of of punk rock and tried to infuse some sorts more psychedelic ideas into it, right? Uh led by uh, Robin Hitchcock, who's since gone on to be a very quirky, enigmatic songwriter. One of the things that I noticed about it as I, as I listened to it was how um, I felt like it was funny and quirky without being stupid and nerdy. It, I'll give you that, yeah. It didn't, it didn't drift into the annoyingly nerdy like, kind of Have you of ever realm. listened to records where people were just it's so clever that it just got annoying? In, in fact, Robin Hitchcock is that for me in the 80s. Oh, really? Uh, just uh, too clever for anybody but himself. Like, like, like the that. joke is always with him, not with you. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of like that about but it. But I didn't get that from this one. I, I'll you give you that. No, I, I got this one was very much like what you were saying. It's and, and you can not hear, too clever for its own good. It, it basically spawned a uh, uh, shoegaze and dream pop kind of stuff. Uh, That's it, it's. Mm-hmm. Had, I mean, it has its. I mean, it definitely spawned Kurt Vile and and. Um Tame and Paula and that kind of stuff. I'll give him that. You think so? Yeah, I think that's where the neo psychedelia label has come from. I think the acid punk thing was around when we were kids. I, I never heard it called that. That's a new. That's the Pitchfork generation calling him them the when Godfathers of neo psychedelia, which is cool. And this kids love the. This record was not popular in the UK. No, and it, it was not. They didn't do much over here. I don't think either, the only it? sales they had in the UK were imports to the US, which reminded me a lot. And t- Henry, tell me if I'm wrong. That story, along with the sound, reminded me a lot of a band I really did like, which I didn't understand why this didn't do anything for me. But this sounded a lot like to me people that really loved Pink Floyd and Sid Barrett, sure, but really loved Big Star. Yep. And so it's, yep. it kind of had, they, they, their story mirrored Big Star to me a bit. But more. people weren't really ready for that yet. I'm not, I wasn't. I don't, I don't like that. They um, weren't ready to hear that. And I can only imagine, I, I can listen, I listen to it now as a, you know, a grown man and probably like it more now than I would have as a 20 something. Um, my, my, my number one note is everything about this says I should like this. Why yeah, don't I? That's weird. Yeah. Because I d- absolutely did the, the Spotify reissued. I think Matador reissued this thing, and it ba- they basically tacked a whole other record on. Yeah, it, I noticed that on, on the, the end. end of it. I don't know if you got through all those. That was no, funny. I didn't. I, I just got through the basics, and you know, I'm I, I'm a big Robin Hitchcock fan, right? Somebody could say that about me, probably. Uh, and listening to this was like it confirmed. Like, yep, 
Right, well, and, it, and it definitely confirmed yeah. for me the exact opposite, <laughs> which we used to go to war when we were kids about Robin Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah. It absolutely drove me up a fucking wall. But I think <laughs> part of that was, and I think that's what kind of unlocked for me why I was indifferent to this, which is I associated back in the 80s or early 90s when we were starting to really form our own musical opinions, mm-hmm. I really attached anything to do with psychedelic or any of that to hippies and the sixties and my parents' generation yep. and fuck that. I don't want to see a guy in a paisley shirt. Right. And I don't <laughs> want to see a guy with hair down below his ears yeah. singing about bees in the closet with um, you know, L S D trips and shit. I, that's and and Pink Floyd. I didn't want to hear about Pink Floyd and I didn't want to hear about so I think that part of that like, is like what, a, it's like a predisposition against it. Yeah, it's almost like now I have this. Um, mm-hmm. I've been in, inoculated. Is that I've been yeah, inoculated against, against them? So it just. But you did go back and listen to Sid Barrett. And, but I really right? don't and like it, Sid right? Barrett. Um, Pink Floyd, the first record, "Pipers at the Gates of Dawn," is my least. How about favorite. his solo stuff? Did you like that? Just for the weird, just like oh, that's what a crazy person. That could be like. something a different. A, it, this could be although just Robin Hitchcock always seemed like he was doing a Sid Barrett impersonation I, when I, he was I doing do, his solo. I do think there are aspects of records that you and I differ on, like the reasons you would like it. You know what I mean, right? And that's, I think that's been interesting to see because I think if you look back to January of this year, you'll see some of my picks. I don't pick people to listen to because they're objectively good, but sometimes they're just really interesting, even if they're a train wreck. That's why you guys should never listen to Henry's recommendations because I'm going to tell you about stuff that's objectively you, fucking good. Well, I will agree with you if it's uh, this is actually objectively good, and you don't have to just rely on my take on it. <laughs> okay. Oh, he's going to go get, he's going to say nine out of 10, <laughs> nine out of 10 <laughs> critics. You serve. Well, here's, here's what I'm going to nine say. out of 10 dentists approve. Of dentists it sounds like music for dentists, by the way. I'm going to say this. Then I never heard of the record. Now I'm totally indifferent to it, but I'm not going to recommend it, but I am going to say I have so much respect for it as an artifact. And I know Henry loves it. Sure. If you, if you really want a deep dive, it's kind of like going back and listening to the Velvet Underground. Even if you don't like the Velvet Underground, you should go back and hear for it. For historic reasons. Right. So that, you yeah. should check this out. As an archive. <laughs> right. I don't know that you'll like it, but you should go back and check it out. One thing that the, the, the listeners may not know, I certainly didn't until I look at that, but one of the members of this band, uh, his name was Kimberly Rue, R-E-W. He went on to be in Katrina and the Waves. Mm-hmm. I believe he started Katrina yeah. Noise. Yes, I and, saw that. And wrote, like, Walking on Sunshine. Which, sadly enough, when I was listening to this record, I went, if I had made this record, I would go start Katrina and the Waves, too. <laughs> I was like, Jesus, dude. Because I need Could a there be fucking anything? pop record. Could there be anything more different, Jesus? I know, right? <laughs> and I thought, he must really hate and you, and you know what the sad thing is? As, as, as much artistic credit as the soft boys have, yeah. and they'll probably live... In infamy forever. That dude probably made eight million times more money with Katrina. With the, the way, one hit. With one hit. Yeah. And he didn't have to put up the Robin Hitchcock, whom looks like a, and who is knows? a jackass. Who right? knows what he's like personally? I could not stand Robin you, Hitchcock. I think, I think you. you I can remember me one night it. we were watching 120 you're, minutes I have you together. Responsible. You're the one. You're the one who introduced me to Robin. I think Hitchcock. it was because we watched 120 minutes together. And I was like, at my yeah, house. that's my guy. 
No, I wasn't. He was my new guy. He was your it's guy. It's your yeah. fault. All right. I'll take the blame for that. I apologize. You even told me I sounded like Robin Hitchcock one. That's well, sucks. you did because you were you went through a Robin Hitchcock phase. It yeah. was pretty brutal. Everything I about was pretty it. good. There's two guys, by the way, folks, that you'll find out that the course of this podcast that Henry and I have always disagreed on, and that is Robin Hitchcock and Billy Bragg. <laughs> I will never like either one of those artists, and uh, Henry will never not like right, either and, one of those and artists. I'll, and I'll go to the death defending. Right. All right, Henry, so we've got to our next record, which is kind of a record, but it's also one song. It's a 24-minute epic. There is a part one and a part two. Oh, okay. Well, I just listened to part one. No, you listened to probably this about. Oh, I did? I think they mashed them together. Oh, they did? Okay. I, was, I knew there the was one. The one on one. iTunes is 24 and a half That's minutes exactly long. the one I listened to. Okay. And the, and it, the album slash song is called ITT, and it's by Fela Kute or Fela Kute. And Africa 70. Yep. And there's only one song to play, so here's a bit of ITT. from a documentary that I watched that came out in 2014 mm-hmm. that if you liked that at all and if you like what we're going to talk about with him, I highly suggest you check out. And it was called Finding Fela by, and it's by a documentary filmmaker named Alex Gibney who's done a couple other cool documentaries as well. But it will, it will, it will give you a lot of info about uh, what was going on with this guy. Did you look into what was going on about I did. I thought you might be able to give a better intro than me. Yeah, so um, Fela Kute was a Nigerian uh, musician and songwriter who didn't just uh, play the music. He lived this shit. I kind of think of him as punk before there was punk because uh, his music actually had consequences. He did protest music as part of what he did. He created a compound, which he called the Kalakuti Republic. Really? Which was a commune that he founded in Nigeria, where fans and like-minded people came, it was kind of a communist, uh, socialist kind of place. Mm-hmm. He put out a record called Zombie in 1977, which criticized heavily the Nigerian government and the Nigerian president, and they actually attacked the commune and the compound because of that record. He got attacked Damn. by the army and the government. They killed his mother. I did read that he was subject to a lot of brutality and was beaten and put in jail a lot. They beat they the shit out of him and killed his mother. And his reaction to that was, number one, ITT, 
which I'll explain the protest, but the other reaction was he put his mother in a wooden box and delivered her to the presidential mansion and laid her on the doorstep. That is gangster right there. Yeah, this dude was the real deal. He ended, He also ended up dying of what was a cliche, but is appropriate for a person protesting the way Africa was been treated, mm-hmm. which was he died of AIDS in 1997. For real? Yes. Complications from AIDS. The song ITT, what is so fearless and amazing about it was that ITT, the corporation, basically owned large parts of the Ni- of Nigeria and the Nigerian government. International Telephone and Telegraph. Right. And uh, he calls out both the president of Nigeria and the uh, CEO of ITT in the song, basically saying that Nigeria had become a banana republic under the control of ITT. I thought it was cool because basically when he put ITT out, most people thought that that would be it. That would be like his death. That. But the, it, they would have killed him about it? Well, they'd almost killed him for zombie, and then he basically names uh, the president by name in ITT, which mm-hmm. uh, he didn't do on zombie. So the fearlessness with which that with which he did that was amazing. On top of all this, whether you like it or not, I don't know. Henry and I will talk about his thoughts on it. But he basically invented a style of music called Afrobeat, which um, includes a lot of different African and R&B and soul type things. There's a lot of horns in it, so I'm thinking Henry probably is not the biggest fan. But you got to ex- respect and admire what the guy was and what he was all about. And like I said, if you're interested or you like his music, definitely check out Finding Fela because it's a, it does a much better job than what I just did of explaining the, his life and time. Yeah, uh, so this song is a, one, a long 20-minute song. And outside of uh, the lyrics, which i got to be honest with you, are, are a little bit difficult for an English-speaking person to determine, I would think. you really got to take several passes at it and listen to it closely. I liked the horns on this song. Wow. I like the way that they were recorded. There's something about the way they mic horns that it seems brassy and so screwed up on some things, and some things they just do it right. Like, if you listen to old jazz records, and you listen to the way that they mic'd the drums in the room, and the way that um, the way that they did horns, like, they, they put the horns in the environment, as opposed to, like, straight off the speaker, right off the cone. It's, it's so much better and warmer that way. Um, I love this song. It was crazy. I was driving to Shakori Hills, driving through the country, and I was amazed that the bass line could suddenly change, and I don't realize it. It's right. like he slid it in there. Yeah, like you know a, what I mean? Yeah, because it's like it's like. A, Am I crazy? No, because it's like this but, trance, and like the song will change, and yeah, you don't notice, and then all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, and I was like, Jesus, this is different. like a spiritualized record or something, you know? Right. And that's the the vibe I got off it because it was long and it wasn't broken up by verse chorus. I mean, I'm sure he influenced a lot of. There were a lot of people we respect that sure, knew all about that, him that we didn't. Even. I didn't. I didn't, I didn't know, know much him. about yeah. him at all. This is my first exposure to the record at all, and I really uh, regret that because it um, it was a lot of fun. When I say fun, that sounds like a shitty way to say it. No, it is. It's a. It, it's actually because a, even, I, if you don't, if you put the lyrical content aside and listen to it as just a musical piece, it absolutely works. Yeah, and for somebody to put together a 24 minute musical piece that I will listen to, yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be... Uh, it put me in a trance, really. Right. It was great. I, I think it was great. It is definitely my recommend for the episode. Damn it. Um, and it also inspired me to want to want to look deeper into what, uh, what, you know, his output. So I would I would highly encourage that. But anyway, um, yeah, this is uh, one I recommend. And um, Yeah, me too, man. I really liked it. It's but, a great call. I'm glad I got a chance to. To hear it. Yeah, sure. Um, so let's go on to our last record. 
Okay. And Henry, what is that record? We are going to listen to Xanadu. Which, Something that couldn't be more at the opposite end of the political uh-huh. spectrum than ITT. Coming right out of <laughs> and right into Xanadu. Right. Olivia Newton John. A pure pop uh, sugar coated candy fantasy after ITT. Right. And so we got a choice. You, you want to play I'm Alive. And I feel like we're obliged to play Xanadu. Okay, here was, and, and, and I, I, I see what you're saying, but I think, and I haven't talked to you about this record, I think we're going to both agree that the best half of this record is the, the second, second half. half. <laughs> so should we not play something from the best half of the record? You know what? As a first, let's just play, let's play two songs. Parts of each? Yeah, we're going to play a little bit of Olivia Newton-John's Xanadu, and then we're going to play I'm Alive by ELO. the first one we did two cuts from but okay so yeah this one uh is a soundtrack record is it the first soundtrack record that we've done i think it is i don't think the bgs or streisand or any of those were no no i I think this is our first soundtrack record there are other people on this record besides those two the The tubes tubes. gene kelly or somebody does something (laughs) that first side is a fucking dog it's a mess but that first song was i don't know if the first if magic is a good song, or if I just like it because it was like pleasant you, when I was a kid, and it was ubiquitously around. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Is that a well-written song? Because I kind of like the guitar. Is it comforting because it, it's attached to like memories of mine? I think but it's a well-written song. Do you like it? Yeah. In fact, I was that- kind of even more disappointed in the rest of the first half of the record because oh, the rest of I was listening dog. to the first song, going, "Well, maybe." Maybe there's some gems on yeah. here that I missed. So this got me all Olivia Newton-John obsessed for maybe about two hours. 
And uh-huh. so, oh, two hours. And I found out some bad news about her, you know, like her cancer's come back and everything. Did you ever, this is completely off topic. Oh boy. <laughs> Did you ever look at the video? By the way, the song physical is terrible. It's objectively bad. <laughs> I knew where you were going with this. And, but I didn't remember this, but that video was like ridiculous. It fat shamed all these guys and made a joke out of them. Yes. And also, I loved it. When and I was also, a kid. uh, made fun of gay people. I don't remember the that. guys, the built buff guys were walking into the, the sauna holding hands and she's like all disappointed. Oh yeah. I remember do that. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. 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 I do and, remember that. And ends up with like making goo goo eyes at the fat guy. And at some point in the video, this is not even the record we're talking about. No. At some point they, they take the two images and like, I guess the idea is, Hey, if you're a fat person, you can eventually be like this really buff dude here. I don't know. It was fucked up. The vi- <laughs> that the was values- in your that was in your two hour like exploration you earlier when, in Queen, and you were saying that people had a different set of values than they do now. It's true. Fat bottom girls wouldn't happen today, probably. No, no, we are in a much more PC world. Yeah, back then you could about say anything or show any kind of anything, and it without, was just about fear of like, and it was just a joke. It wasn't a what, to us. No, that's what I'm saying. It was like it was funny, haha, that she was fat shaming people. Yeah. Yeah. But imagine how fat people felt watching that on MTV. Nobody cared back in 1980. <laughs> they didn't exist. You know what they we needed to do? We couldn't see them on the they internet. They needed to lose some goddamn weight. <laughs> because we couldn't see them on the internet. No, there's no internet. We yeah. didn't know anything about their story. They suffered in silence. <laughs> let me ask you, let anyway. me ask you this question because I did not or have not. I never saw Xana do the movie. I have no idea uh, what it's about. I, I don't believe I ever saw it. I do know that it is the inspiration for the Golden Raspberry Award. Which means it's horrible, right? It's to recognize the worst films of yes, the year. Right. Okay, so yeah. I don't I don't know that I actually know anybody that has seen the movie, which I think is a testament to how good I might have seen it as a young person. The song so Xanadu, the song uh the first song is that called Memory? Magic. Magic, sorry, magic. Mm-hmm. Um, how big of hits those were. And then I think the second half of the record, the ELO half, is really pretty good. It's pretty good. I, I don't think it's his best work. No, no, no. But but compared to the first half of this record, it's... Xanadu is actually one of the better songs he's written, just in terms of like just the content of it. Apparently, he did re-record this with his vocals only. Right. I thought... I thought that the song reframed Olivia Newton-John really well. I did, too. I, I don't understand, after listening to that, why the whole record was not done that way. But then I haven't yeah. seen the movie. It was, the, from what I can I can't gather, imagine I watched, what that Tube song, how that fit into the movie. I only watched some of the videos. From what I can gather, it's basically a mixture of uh, old dance numbers shot really bad. As much as we're talking about the movie, I, I think you folks get the idea that the, the album itself is not the greatest. Although I, it's hit and miss, it's hit or miss really badly. But then again, Henry, this reinforces the idea I uh, earlier about I have a real misgiving about songs that were not written for the purpose of being a song. Yeah, a couple of those on the first half obviously are written to serve some sort of. We're going back to 1920s. Do, 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 uh-huh. do, do, do. They don't even have this. The aesthetic doesn't carry through. Well, and then it's like, an album. It, did it, remi- it reminded me of what somebody did much better with Moulin Rouge, where you had 
this 1920s sounding verse, and then all of a sudden the guy from the tubes comes screaming in with 80s rock and roll, and then it goes back to 20s. That made no sense. It was just bad. So I, I kept trying to find information about how they got Jeff Lynn in on this thing. Right, because it seems like a project he would have passed on. Well, from my, my listening to this record a couple times, my thought is, why didn't they just hire ELO to do the whole... She was a star, man. She no, was, no, no. But uh, but I think yeah. the best turn she has on this record is There's when no, she's with him. Why, nobody could know that. I can't imagine why you couldn't have written six more songs. It was just the one song that they did together. Well, I know. They could have wrote five more, six more songs, mm-hmm. done a couple duets, left Magic on the front, and then just the rest of it been ELO, and you would have been fine. The the first half, I think... It's um, not like she writes music, It sounds right? like some managers got involved and said, look, you know, Olivia Newton-John is a soft rock singer. We need to give her soft rock. Well, this songs. is definitely like this we're we're going to capitalize on the Queen, our Queen, on the Grease thing. Yeah, and we're going to get her quickly into another musical, and we're going to make a bunch of money like we did off of Grease. Um, didn't I guess it didn't turn out that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think Xanadu. I think Xanadu the album far outsold Xanadu the movie. It's such a cool title too. Like the never-ending story or something like Zan, You know what I mean? I always thought of it when I was a kid, although I didn't see it. I always thought of it the same way I thought of a lot of what culture was doing in the 80s. Everything was about the future. Yeah. And ELO always well, seemed like they were like the, from space mm-hmm. or some shit. The bits of the, mo- of the movie and the video that I've seen has like outlines of people, like in neon and stuff. So right. Like new sort of special effect-y kind of. Hey, it's the future kind of right. stuff. Right, definitely not the seventies. Uh, Already not. Apparently, the 70s. there's some kind of Greek mythological characters involved or something. I mean, I guess I have to watch it. Oh, I don't. I don't think that. it's tolerable. Yeah, I don't think it's. I've heard people have tried to watch it and turn it off. <laughs> it's not interesting enough because it's boring. But it is the last movie that Gene Kelly did. Wow. I love how for this record we talked more about the movie and other things, but we played. I don't played, really want to talk about. We the played record. two tracks from it. Okay, so <laughs> well, they uh, were good ones. Henry, we're we're both going to not recommend this record. No, this, um, this is a no. It's a no. So, what is your recommendation well, you, of the month of June? You took mine. It was going to be Phil Acuti only because it was such a great surprise. Well, you can you can still recommend it. Yeah, I recommend. I recommend you owe it to yourself as a human being to go out and listen to this thing with an open mind. Give it. 24 minutes of your time. Yeah, so we both recommend ITT by Fela Kute as right. the... Uh, it is It is a great textured piece of work that is not going to be what you think. It doesn't really rely on the typical kind of Afrobeat tropes that I think people are, are expected to hear. Um, there, It's recorded well and uh, it had a great message and he was a great man. All right, so that is June of 1980. I think it went pretty well. We got it? through it. Yeah, we I, did. I, I don't think we argued that much either. No, we just differ on some two particular records, but it's kind of like we already know. Uh, next month, we're going to have records coming up, Henry, by bands like Devo. The, to next, I know next one is going to be really good. Uh, Joy Division, yes. Hall and Oates, that's the one. Huh? Uh, Echo and the Bunnymen, dude. Adam and the Ants, bring the lotion. <laughs> That may be our new catchphrase. <laughs> bring the lotion. 80s music exposed. Bring the lotion. Uh, Henry, tell them, tell them uh, about our show. <laughs> if you like our show or you like the records that we're choosing. Bring the lotion. Bring the lotion. It leaves the lotion. <laughs> Please rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, you can also listen to us on um, 
uh, Stitcher, and share it with your friends. You can chat us up on Twitter at 80s Exposed. You can email us at 80s Music uh, Exposed Gmail. We have a, another sort of sister podcast that we've been going strong since uh, about a year now. Well, uh, it's called the No GD Band Podcast. We're a lot more sort of current, less wistful, maybe even less professional. Um, but we run it into the ground. You got any saved rounds for them, Chris? No. Hey, guess what? What? I made you a mixtape. 